Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Open to Luke chapter 22. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. As we do, as I read it, would you please stand? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. So it's the Wednesday before Jesus' death. And Judas, who we know elsewhere as the son of perdition, is about to do what he was born to do, which is to betray the Son of God. And so from here out, the, the rest of, of Luke's gospel is an account of of Jesus' final days, his betrayal, his trial, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his appearance to the disciples for those 40 days, and then finally in the last few verses of the book, Jesus' ascension into heaven to the right hand of the Father. The first thing our text this morning tells us is that the people of Israel are preparing for they're they're uh, preparing for they're on the verge of the feast of unleavened bread more commonly known to us as Passover as you well know that Jesus the unblemished lamb of God would be killed during Passover is no coincidence And the Apostle Paul teaches us that Jesus is our Passover and that without without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so as Israel was commanded to do year after year, remembering the Lord's deliverance from slavery of Egypt and the passing over of that firstborn because of the blood on the doors of Israel's homes, so now Jesus was the fulfillment of, of the Passover promises. His sacrifice was the reality that the shadowy and and yearly celebrations of Israel pointed toward. And that must be understood. Uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died as a sacrifice in order to save his people from their sins. And in the days of that week when it happened, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy is fulfilled. And this is the fullness of time. God is saving the world. 
Once again, we learn that the, the most religious men, the most religious men were out to get Jesus. They were seeking how they might put him to death. The men in charge of the temple sacrifices and the teaching ministry of the temple were the ones who were dead set against Jesus. From the start with, with Herod, and all along through his ministry, Jesus was hated and he was opposed by these men and their godless theology. Right? They were blind. And being blind, they missed the day of his visitation. And Jesus, in scathing rebukes, let them know what was going on, like this one we read of elsewhere, let them alone, they are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides the blind man, both will fall into a pit. And then there's one man among the twelve who, who was also blind. But before we focus on that man, notice the statement at the end of verse 2. They wanted to kill Jesus for they were afraid of the people. I mean, in what respect was their fear of the people a reason for killing Jesus, as this, this phrasing makes it seem? At other times, their fear of the people made them retreat from Jesus and, and leave him alone. Now, though, it appears the fearfulness of the priests, those descendants, think of that, the descendants of the faithful Levites. Now, now it appears that the fearfulness of the priests and scribes is pushing them not away from action, but toward action. They've plotted enough. It has been theory long enough. Right? They, they have watched too many people go after Jesus. And if they didn't put a halt to it, his influence would expand and they would lose everybody. So with the voices still echoing of those who are lauding Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, remember that triumphal entry, the priests and the scribes know that if they do not act, they're going to lose their influence and lose their people. So in that sense, their fear of the people, their fear of their actions leads them to bring, you know, bring to a finish, bring to a consummation their long-standing plans to, to whack Jesus. Before their fearfulness of the people led them to pause, now their fearfulness of the people leads them to act. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, would be their man. Right? He, he came up with the plot that these men would seize upon and Satan that hater of God, would add his weight to the situation. Luke says that Satan entered into Judas. I mean, what does this mean? Can Satan, can that fallen angel possess a man? Or, or is this metaphorical language of some kind? Ryle takes it literally. 
He says these words are peculiarly awful. To be tempted by Satan is bad enough. To be sifted, buffeted, led captive by him is truly awful. But when Satan enters into a man and dwells in him, the man becomes indeed a child of hell. You remember that Jesus said that Satan has no part of him. With Judas, Satan had every part of him. The serpent of old that tempted Eve in the garden is now entering into a man, a last-ditch effort to bring the Son of God down. He, he had tried before, right, by tempting Jesus in the wilderness, in the desert. Now he would use a man who was open to his influence. Judas had no defenses against Satan. He was a man who walked according to the prince of the power of the air. He did not resist the devil. Using Judas, the the seed of the serpent, is waging a last battle against the seed of the woman. But is the possession physical? Everybody's still wanting me to answer that question, right? Can Satan enter into a man in the same way that a demon can? Or was this Satan using his demons, and that's being described as Satan entering into a man? Is this like King Saul, right, and that evil spirit that entered into him? John in his gospel says the same thing. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. I'm not sure this is physical possession. We see nothing like it anywhere else. Not with Job. Not with Peter. Not with Adam or Eve. Um, but we do with Judas. We have this language. We do with the son of perdition. Uh, perhaps this is the Holy Spirit's way of saying that there has been no man more given over to, to the influence of Satan than Judas Iscariot, betrayer of the Son of God. Calvin says that just as the believer is said through sanctification to be filled with the Spirit, so Judas is said to be filled with the suggestions of Satan, or or so filled with the suggestions of Satan, that it is said Satan entered into him. Calvin says, But as they who are more fully confirmed in the faith which they formerly possessed are said to believe, and thus an increase of their faith is called faith. So now that Judas is utterly given up to Satan so as to be hurried on by vehement impetuosity to every extremity of evil, Satan is said to have entered into him. Knowing from the book of Job that Satan only goes so far as he is allowed by God and that he asks permission to afflict Peter, perhaps there is further permission here from God. But I do not know if angels can possess. And there is nothing to make me think that angels can. But we can know that Judas was open to Satan in a way that perhaps no other man ever has been open. Or ever will be. So what does Judas do? Notice how matter of fact the details are in our passage. This is the worst bargain 
perhaps the, the most evil and proud transaction any man or any men have ever made. They, in their astonishing pride, are discussing the terms of a contract that will end with the Son of God dead. They are mere men. Right? These are mere men discussing how much for the death of the eternal Son of God incarnate. Mere men, men created by Jesus, and they are discussing such a wickedness. Judas goes to those who are trying to kill Jesus, and he makes a deal. He will figure out how to get Jesus into their hands, and, and uh, the chief priests and officers will get him some money. He tells them, you know what, if I, I can get him alone. I know all of his movements. I know where he sleeps at night. I know where we hang out. They hear of this and they think of the possibilities and scripture says they were glad. They were glad. And agreed to give him money. For money, Judas betrayed the Son of God. For money. The terms were good to him, so he consented. For so little, Judas gave up so much. His desire for 30 pieces of silver made him forget all the miracles, all the sermons, all the healings, all the demonstrations of the power of the Son of God, all the conversations that he personally had had with Jesus along the way between place to place, and the, from town to town. All the times he had personally received the teaching of the Son of God. His mind was blinded, and there is no better example of the blinding effect of unbelief than Judas, who was so close to Jesus. So much knowledge, so much access, so much closeness, and yet he would not believe. Think of this passage from the standpoint of Judas Iscariot. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I mean, think of this from the perspective of Judas Iscariot. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Again, think of Judas. And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
And that's the blinding effect of sin. It goes to show you that a man will do anything for money. I mean, think about that. It's just that the currency is not always coin, is it? The currency is not always coin. Sometimes it's sexual fantasies. A man will give up Jesus for his sexual fantasies, for his orgasms. Man will, will betray Christ in order to pursue the desires of the flesh for sodomy, for adultery. Sometimes, sometimes the currency of someone's betrayal is success in the world. Sometimes the currency is one's own family, right? Not willing to follow Christ and lose our families. And so we choose our families and betray Christ. And yet what is, is true of, of Judas now, even as his soul suffers in hell, awaiting the resurrection of the body, which, which will then rejoin his body and soul, and then he'll be cast back into hell there to suffer forever. What is true of Judas now is that he recognizes the absurdity of the transaction he made. Or perhaps he does not. And is even now ridiculously shouting that God is unjust. God is unjust. Why would he punish me for such a small thing? Regret is, in a sense, a part of godliness, and, and I don't think damned souls in hell can know regret. They are like the rich man who merely cry out for relief. Right? They blaspheme God as his wrath falls upon them in wave after wave after wave. They blaspheme. Judas is adding his blasphemies to this betrayal. For 30 pieces of silver, <clears throat> at the most, a half year's wages. He desired that money more than he desired eternal life in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Right? Or what will, it, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? It was far less than the whole world for Judas. And it's taken much less for many men and women I have known to betray the Lord and to despise his bride. Far less. For 30 pieces of silver. Such is the deceitfulness of man's heart. A man like Judas can spend day and night with Jesus for three years and then betray him for 30 pieces of silver. 
Man can see the delights of a fruitful marriage and toss his children up in the air, right? And laugh with them and spend years caring for them and then betray his wife by sleeping with a hooker on a business trip. For 30 pieces of silver. Knowledge... Knowledge we learn from Judas is insufficient for salvation. He was one of the twelve. He was homeschooled by parents who had parents who believed. He he sat at the feet of the creator of the world's learning. And for 30 pieces of silver, he discarded him like a piece of trash. He was always being taught, but never learning. He had had many thoughts, but none of them were taken captive in obedience to Jesus Christ. They were all his own thoughts. They were all his. For 30 pieces of silver, for a little bit of money, for a direct deposit into his savings account, Judas made common cause with God-hating hypocrites. John the Baptist's brood of vipers. Right? Jesus, sons of hell. Travel about making disciples, and they're twice the sons of hell as they are. It's with those men that Judas made a deal. It seems, it seems really good for him to get some money before he lost his chance. Right? He had some capital that he needed to spend before someone else got that capital. And to go to those who are setting out to destroy Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. For 30 pieces of silver, for for a little bit of money. So what's vying for your affection right now? Is it too evangelical for me to preach like that? What's vying for your affection? There are many things, aren't there? There are many things that are vying for your affections, aren't there? What is that one thing? What is that one thing that is clear to you? You are, you have an inordinate affection for what God says no to. What is the thing you are thinking about right now? What is it? What is your pot of stew? Remember Esau, the man who sold his birthright for one meal. Sold his birthright. Casting himself out for one single meal. In Hebrews, Esau comes up as an example and a warning. It says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. 
That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That no, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, and this is the sobering part, right? Even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He was rejected for he found no place for what? Repentance. Though he sought for it with tears. Esau came short of the grace of God. Judas came short of the grace of God. And after they had done their wicked deeds of betraying the good things of the Lord, they both grieved, didn't they? But neither of them repented. And I think you know, without me saying much, the difference between grief and repentance. I've shown a lot of grief in my life over my sins because the consequences were so bad. I did not want to live in the consequences of my sin. But I've done far less repenting. Far less repenting where that sin is put behind me. The reality of the situation is this. A man will give up Jesus for the tiniest things. You will give up Jesus for the littlest things. A meal in the case of Esau. A sack of cash in the case of Judas. But Jesus says that a man could gain the whole world and still not have what is equivalent to the salvation of his soul. Is this too depressing for you? Have I forgotten the power of conversion and the change of the heart and the affections? No, I haven't. But I will not ignore the deceitfulness of sin and the remaining sin within us. I will not blunt the force of the Holy Spirit's command. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. That putting to death of the sins is the experience of the children of God. They are led by the Spirit. Judas was not led by the Spirit. Nor was he putting to death the deeds of the body. He was led by Satan and he was enlivening the deeds of the body. He was strengthening them. He was fueling them. You remember what Judas used to do day by day by day by day that leads to this final, I want a sack of cash. He used to steal from the money that they had collected for their means, the apostles. He used to steal from the money bag. He was not putting to death the deeds of the flesh. He was fueling them. He was enlivening them. He was led by Satan. He was enlivening the, the, the deeds of the body. The Christian, the Christian, though, puts to death the thought of betraying Jesus for money. The 
Christian grieves every appetite that puts him at odds with God's perfect law. The hypocrite, the false professor, the man with knowledge but no faith. I mean, for him, 30 pieces of silver seems like a reasonable deal for his soul. There is no fight, there is no faith, there is no resistance. But dear brothers and sisters, if there is fight, if there is fight, if you are moved forward by faith, even though not perfect, if there's resistance, give praise to God. Give praise to God. You are closer to Peter, who denied the Lord but repented, than you are to Judas, who merely went from sin to sin and had only one thing afterwards, which was regret. So these words from the, the Apostle John to close. First John 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Isn't it interesting there? He says, stop sinning, and if you do sin, there's an advocate. And we're like, he's taken away with one hand what he gave with the right. You know, I mean, why did he do that? Why did he just stick with the commands, commands, commands? This is the gospel. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And yet that does not forbid the Apostle John from saying, Stop sinning. Stop sinning. If you don't stop sinning, you're following the path of Judas. You have no resistance. And it's dangerous. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Jesus. We thank you for his powerful work to redeem souls. We thank you that we have an advocate in Jesus. We thank you that he is truly a propitiation for sins. And Father, we pray that knowing that, knowing that glorious truth, having those promises that we would that we would perfect holiness in the fear of you. And that we would so despise imitating Esau and Judas. And rather we would repent and be like the Apostle Peter. Help us, Father, for those who are trapped in habitual sin. Lord, I pray that you would give them the first ingredient of of fighting those sins. That, of course, is your spirit and faith, but also give them a hatred for sin. Give us all a hatred for sin. 
even as we remember Judas and his love for money. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.